Welcome to the King's Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, Editor-in-Chief and Staff Writer for No Ceilings NBA. And I am here, of course, with my co-host, Ray LeBeau. Hello there, Ray. Hi, Nick. Glad to be here to do our weekly recap and preview. And we have a very special guest for the latter portion of the episode. We were fortunate enough to have Sarah Kustak, the Brooklyn Nets color commentator, join us to discuss tonight's game between the Kings and the Nets. But before we get into our conversation with Sarah, we will, of course, do our usual recap and preview. And starting out this week with the in-season tournament game against the New Orleans Pelicans. And this was one that we talked about at length during our episode last week. And we were both concerned by the matchup problems that the Pelicans proved to be for the Kings in the first two games. And unfortunately, outside of the first quarter of this game, it was a lot more of the same story. The Kings jumped out to a really big lead to start things off. And you know, I was at least hopeful that they might be able to maintain that. And instead, the New Orleans Pelicans went on a massive run. Basically, after the Kings opened up a 26 to 14 lead, the Pelicans erased that by 11:43 in the second quarter. And from then on out, it was all New Orleans all the way. And again, I mean, this is a team that the Kings match up very poorly with that the Kings had already lost to twice this season. So, you know, it wasn't the most unbelievable thing in the world that they didn't end up taking this one. But, you know, it is unfortunate that this was their chance to sort of redeem a couple of those really rough early games against the Pelicans. And instead, it was the same sort of deal of, Brandon Ingram having an incredible game, Zion Williamson doing a lot of damage in brief spurts, and the Kings just not having an answer on the other end for getting around Dyson Daniels, Herb Jones, and Jose Alvarado. The Brandon Ingram show, more than anything, I suppose, but also, yes, Jose Alvarado certainly um, made, as they say, made his presence felt in both, actually, at both ends of the. Yeah. He's someone who, you know, made his reputation as, you know, absolute bulldog hound point of attack defender but he had a lot of great offensive moments in this game i mean he you know dished out a lot of key assists including the bucket by herb jones that put the pelicans in the lead for good and you know man it's just one of those things where even with how poorly the kings match up against the pelicans down low you know with that sort of a matchup, you can hope that De'Aaron Fox might be able to take over the game, but the combination of Dyson Daniels and Jose Alvarado is just a nightmare for any point guard to get past. And in that first blowout to the Pelicans, it was, you know, more Daniels. In this game, it was, you know, a mix of Alvarado and Daniels. But man, I mean, this is a team that the Kings struggled against without CJ McCollum. And, you know, CJ wasn't exactly, you know, the man who took over this game, right? That was Brandon Ingram, as you already mentioned. But You know, the fully healthy Pelicans are a force to be reckoned with, and even the non-fully healthy Pelicans are a team that, you know, we've seen the Kings struggle against three different times this season, and we'll just have to hope that they're not a future playoff matchup for the Kings, because that would be a really tough hill to climb. There's a model for the way they can sometimes play that could could be hopeful. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where... It's very interesting that the Pelicans immediately after this win over the Kings got absolutely housed by the Los Angeles Lakers, who the Kings have beaten three times this season. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, we've talked about this a lot with, you know, matchups dictating fights. And this was very much that situation of the Kings just could not have, could not find an answer to how they were getting bullied down low. And 
how the Pelicans were controlling the tempo of the game and, you know, really sort of controlling all of the defensive rotations because what they have on the defensive end of the floor is a force to be reckoned with. And unfortunately it was not a force that the Kings were able to overcome. Yeah. You always want to, um, when you're talking about their defense, I always want to mention Herb Jones. Yeah. It's, it's hard to avoid mentioning him. I mean, he's, you know, clearly one of the best defenders that we have in the NBA. And, you know, as we talked about in previewing this game, when you combine the point of attack defensive forces that the Pelicans team has with Herb Jones as your backline guy, it's, it's difficult for any team, but particularly for a team like the Kings who really struggles when they can't, you know, can't penetrate, you know, get into the lane and sort of collapse defenses from there, you know, combine that with how difficult the defensive assignments were for the Kings with, you know, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson, not particularly having any obvious cover on the King side. It made things very difficult. It has in each of the previous two matchups and it did again in this one. So, the other game, the shorthanded Suns. Yeah, this was a game that you would think, I don't know, it's kind of similar to actually the Portland game that we talked about a while ago, the Kings overtime win over Portland, where we, you know, we referred to the Kings close loss to the Warriors as a moral victory and that Trailblazers win is more of a moral loss. And this game was a bit closer to the moral loss category in the sense that you know, the Kings came out flat and the Suns had nearly a double digit lead at halftime. And thankfully, the Kings had an absolutely insane third quarter, which, you know, was the deciding factor in this game. But I mean, ultimately, you know, the lead was starting to slip away late. The Kings managed to, you know, stop the Suns from going on a run. But I mean, this is a game that should have been much easier than it was, especially given that it was coming off, you know, three days rest, right? They didn't play between Monday and this game on Friday. And yet even still, I mean, Devin Booker always gives every team trouble. You know, that's not particularly, particularly out of the ordinary, but I mean, Eric Gordon had a really good game in this one. Former Kings legend, Chemezi Metu came off the bench, put up 10 points. And this was a very bedraggled Suns team that the Kings were playing on a significant amount of rest. And even still without that, ridiculous third quarter this would have been a pretty dispiriting loss for the well you need to mention the fourth quarter performance of De'Aaron Fox yes of course Uh, when you say that you know the turning the predominant uh factor was the third quarter well you know I might argue and say the predominant factor was that incredible performance um in the fourth quarter by De'Aaron Fox kind of ironic that uh to an extent he got overshadowed by uh Halliburton um during that week, you know, not that many people probably paid that much attention to what he did, although it was certainly worthy um, because Halliburton stole the show. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Halliburton discussion is one that's going to circle around King's fandom for a long time. You know, it's I was someone who was very displeased with the trade at the time. And, you know, over time, I think it's become more and more clear to me that this was a situation that ultimately worked out very well for both parties. And, you know, adding Demonis Sabonis as, you know, sort of the pair to De'Aaron Fox is one thing, but, you know, Tyrese Halliburton being shipped out meant that De'Aaron Fox was, you know, had the ball in his hands a lot more, that there wasn't sort of a, you know, point guard battle. And I would argue that the two of them played off each other and played together a lot better than maybe some people would think, but, 
ultimately, I think that we're seeing the best of both Fox and Halliburton because they have their own teams. But with De'Aaron, I mean, yeah, once again, the story of De'Aaron Fox for you know a couple of years now, he's once again leading the NBA in fourth quarter scoring. He had 23 points in the fourth quarter. And yeah, I mean, you know, the third quarter, ultimately the Kings, you know, outscored Phoenix 33 to 12 in that quarter, which, you know, is one thing, but this is a game that without Darren Fox doing what he did in the fourth quarter, that lead could have receded. And there were times certainly that it seemed like, you know, Phoenix was one quick run away from snatching the game back and Darren Fox just refused to let that happen. Just kept attacking, kept getting to the line, 10 free throw attempts in the fourth quarter. And, you know, yeah, sure. You know, ultimately the Kings were outscored in every quarter except the third, right? But ultimately this is a game where they needed to hang on and Darren Fox made sure that they hung on even even though it was a very close thing for them to actually hang on to this game. And thanks to the Suns for contributing those two silly flagrant fouls. That helped a lot. Yes, yes, it did. That, you know, stopped the game at key moments and also just, you know, put the Kings put the Kings on the line and you know, again, anytime you have a flagrant, there's always a question of was that really was that really necessary? But those fouls, man, I mean, that's the kind of thing that it's not like we haven't seen Draymond Green do exactly the same thing last week, right? But you know, it's a part of the game that thankfully the Kings don't participate in as much as some other teams. And those are always really frustrating when the team sort of gives away the loss by, you know, making stupid fouls. And you know, again, there are certainly issues to be pointed out, nits to pick with the Kings defense, but stupid fouls, thankfully, tend to not be one of the Kings downfalls. So let's move on now to the preview portion. And the Kings have four games coming up next week. So as I mentioned at the top, we were fortunate enough to have Sarah Kustak join us to cover the Brooklyn Nets portion. But Let's touch on the other three games this week, starting with Tuesday's game. So the Kings are completing a back-to-back, except the second game of that back-to-back is in Los Angeles against the Clippers. And this is an interesting one because, you know, this is not the first time the Kings have faced the Clippers this season, but the Clippers team right now is a very different Clippers team than they were to start the season. And honestly, more to the point, they're a very different Clippers team than they were even five games ago, right? This is a team that clearly is starting to figure out a lot of the pieces. And, you know, this is something that you and I talked about on previous episodes of, look, just give them time. You know, they'll figure it out. The talent is there and it's too much for them not to be able to figure out something. And they're getting to the point where they're figuring things out. And so for this to be the second game of a back-to-back and the road game of the back-to-back, this is going to be a real uphill climb for the games. You know, this is, to me... We said this at the time that um, how they were playing when Harden arrived for the first few games was a classic, likely case of typical um, overreaction by people. Oh my God, what did they? What were they thinking? Okay, and you know we we cautioned. Wait a second. Do you really think that on the fly during the season, having a player of that status and that um, style of play arriving is going to be automatic that they're going to turn into the team. And now we've seen, you know, exactly that they've, they're learning. I would say they're still learning uh, and still acclimating to, um, you know, reach their uh, maximum uh, play. Um, And I think that uh, 
what we've seen is trending in that direction. I think it's going to continue in that direction. I can't predict how what's going to happen in this game. Um, the factors that you've identified obviously come into play, but uh, you know the the, the talent level is uh, extraordinary, and that means that the difficulty in acclimation could mean it's easier. It could mean it's more difficult, or anywhere in between. And, and, you know, the fact that it has taken some time to get used to each other, to me, is certainly predictable and understandable where it's going to lead. Who knows? And, of course, the X factor, given the history, is what's the health of the team going to be? Um, you know, the health of the team the last several years has been abominable. Yes. Um, and, you know, are they all going to stay relatively healthy this year? Are they going to be healthy when it matters? in the playoffs. And I guess the other X factor I would say that's being overlooked is the play of Zubac, who right now is playing extremely well. Um, if he can continue playing at that level and there's that acclimation you know, that continues and they learn to play with each other at, uh, at close to the maximum that they could, you know, that's a team of destiny perhaps. Yeah. I mean, you don't get to say often that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard have played every single game, right? It's not something that we've seen, you know, getting them to play even half the games has been something that we haven't really seen over the last few years. And you mentioned Zubac as well, which I think is key. I mean, it's interesting because he's obviously not the most important player on the team. I don't want to say that by any stretch of the imagination, but he has the least obvious replacement in my mind that like, okay, I guess Daniel Tice is the other center that you throw out without Zubat, but like, you know, they have James Harden and Russell Westbrook, right? They have, they have Norman Powell. They have theoretical guys to back up the main stars, but there isn't really someone to theoretically come in and take over for Zubat. So him being a rim deterrent, defensively and being a you know rim runner post up occasionally kind of guy offensively that's not really something they have outside of him in a way that Russell Westbrook is not James Harden I'm not saying that you know Norman Powell is not Paul George but the difference in type of player I think is less dramatic than going from Zubats to you know Daniel Tice or Mason Plumley. yeah I think Tice um was a great pickup, however, for them to, you know, provide the, the minutes and in, 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 in a certain context. I would also say that based on recent play, you could make a decent argument for Zubac um, being a contender for the all underappreciated team for the league. I mean, he's he's definitely someone who it feels like when he has bad games, his detractors are out in full force. And when he has good games, there is radio silence. <laughs> Let's move on to the next game, and the Kings will be home for that game. So four games this week, only one of them on the road, which is at least nice. But the game Thursday is against the Oklahoma City Thunder, and that is always a fascinating game just because the Oklahoma City Thunder are a fascinating team. But this is also interesting because the Kings have played the Thunder already this season, and that was – I mean, it was also part of the in-season tournament, but that was – I think pretty close to indisputably in my mind, the best game that the team played without De'Aaron Fox. And now Fox is back in the fold, right? And, you know, that's huge for many reasons, obviously. But, you know, I think the thing that was key for the Kings in this game was probably the best game Keegan Murray's played all season. A really great game from Kevin Herter. And that was also one of the games that Keon Ellis started where, you know, his offensive contributions weren't exactly anything to write home about, but the Kings held the Thunder to 98 points. And, you know, that's not something that 
really many teams at all due to the Thunder. So for the Kings to do that without De'Aaron Fox in the fold was spectacularly impressive and also fascinating in terms of how this game will play out with Fox back in the fold. Because, you know, the last time around, the Kings basically just said, like, you know, throw whoever we can on Shea Gilgis-Alexander and hope that everybody else makes up for it. And they did. I mean, Shea had 33 points and the rest of the Thunder team had 65 you know, between them. So if the Kings can, you know, repeat that sort of model, that would be fantastic. But Shea didn't have De'Aaron Fox challenging him, you know, being sort of a back and forth kind of deal. It was really just the Kings found ways for everybody else to contribute and they managed to take the game. And so, you know, again, it'll be very interesting to see how this matchup looks with De'Aaron Fox playing. But the fact that the Kings did so well against the Thunder the first time without Fox is I think a positive sign for, you know, what this matchup might look like on Thursday night. You know, what particularly interests me about this game, taking sort of a step back and looking at it is I see these two uh, franchises as really serving as role models for the league in terms of team building, Mm. Um, you know, more and more plaudits to uh, Monty and Wes. Um, they're just like, in my view, spectacular in um, how they put the team together. But you could say the same thing about OKC. And um, that's what makes the game really interesting to me. And of course, it's any game where SGA plays is interesting because he's the new model of I'm going anywhere where I want to go. And, you know, you might as well not be on the floor. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like the Kings managed to have everybody else on the thunder try to beat them and they couldn't but sga still put up 33 points on 25 shots right it was like we couldn't contain him but if we contain everybody else we can win and sure enough that proved to be a winning formula but yeah dealing with dealing with shay gilgis alexander is not something that anybody does at a particularly high level at this point in shay's career and of course chet is certainly worth um watching and seeing what he's producing at this early stage absolutely i mean (laughs) I don't know. It's funny just because I was so high on Chet Holmgren coming out of his draft year that, you know, pretty much none of his early success surprises me. And his splits are down a little bit from his absolutely crazy start to the year where he was basically like 50, 50, 90 for a stretch of time. But I mean, it's interesting because he's been so hyper efficient offensively and yet you know, where he makes, you know, where he will make his place in the NBA as, in the long term is on the defensive end where, you know, he's someone who just, man, at his size with his mobility, his ability to, you know, cover basically everywhere on the floor, his ability to switch on to pretty much anything. I mean, he's going to be the anchor for the defense of a team that is going to be a threat in the Western conference for a very long time to come because they're so young and they're so good already. I totally agree with that. And the last game that the Kings have in the upcoming week is against the Utah Jazz. So a redux of opening night, basically, except this one actually in Sacramento. And the key, I think, for this Jazz game is just that Lowry Markkinen is currently dealing with a day-to-day injury, but he will almost certainly be back in the fold for that game against the Kings. And, you know, he's not anywhere near the Zion Williamson level of, wow, the Kings just don't have anybody to throw on this guy. But... He is someone who, you know, at his size, his mobility, his shooting touch, he's someone who the Kings, you know, are not particularly well suited to match up against. I would expect that Keegan Murray gets the main defensive assignment on Markinen just because Keegan's been getting the major assignment, 
most of the time this season. And, you know, he's probably the most logical solution to market in among the Kings starting lineup. But I mean, this is a Utah team that, you know, has not exactly had the greatest season has struggled recently. So hopefully that will be, you know, a little bit of a lighter go for the Kings after, you know, back to back against the Nets and Clippers followed by a game against the Thunder. But you know, again, Lowry Markkinen is someone who the Kings don't match up particularly well against. And, you know, he's someone who can control the course of the game by himself. So if the Kings sort of view this as, oh, this is our day off in a tough week. I mean, Markkinen in particular, but this Utah team could come up and surprise them if they're not all the way prepared for it. Well, I think Lowry's a, a, a problem matchup with just about any team, yeah. not just the Kings. Since he's coming off an injury, we don't know at what level he's going to be able to play. If he's playing at you know his full potential level, um, definitely he's a problem. But he's a problem for anyone. Interesting thing or a question regarding the poor play of the Jazz so far is: to what extent is that influenced by his absence, and to what extent are there other factors that are um, at play there? And if he's coming back, is he coming back at full Lowry, or is he coming back as partial Lowry? And what difference is that going to make uh, relative to the team's play? Right. And I mean, it's interesting just because this is a team that was so hot to start last season that, you know, they nearly carried enough of that early hot stretch through to the end of the season, like until they sold off a significant portion of the team in the trade deadline, they were on the fringes of play in contention right up until the last month or so of the season. And, you know, this season, the start was almost the exact opposite, right? I mean, they started two and seven and you know since then they've you know been close to 500 but you know it's not exactly like they've been lighting the world on fire and you know again it's the kind of thing where that hot start to last year i think set a peg for this team that was a lot higher than people expected i mean they were expected to be a bottom five team in the league last year and they weren't and you know, I think they've been solid enough that they're probably not going to be in the bottom five this year, but they're going to be a lot closer to it than they were last year. Sir. Well, you know, you spoke earlier of why New Orleans, the number of reasons why New Orleans um, is a matchup problem, and part of that is the perimeter defense. That's not true for Utah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, point guard in particular, I mean, not exactly an area that the Jazz defend well, barring Chris Dunn, of course. But, you know, again, Dunn has been playing a very minimal role when he has played. And, I mean, Keontae George is someone who I think will be a very good defender, but he's a rookie. Basically, all rookies struggle on the defensive end. So him not being one of the best defenders in the league right away is not particularly surprising. And then beyond that, I mean, you know, Jordan Clarkson and Colin Sexton up front is not the best defensive card lineup you can ask for. So I think there's a big, there's a quite a distinction there from what you were referencing earlier. All right. So now that we've done the recap and preview portion, we have a very special guest. As I mentioned earlier, we were fortunate enough to be joined by Sarah Kustak, color commentator of the Brooklyn Nets for the preview of the upcoming Nets Kings game that will be later today by the time this episode releases. We're very fortunate to have Sarah uh, as our guest to preview. Um, uh, For those of you who are not familiar with her, I hope most of you do watch League Pass and are familiar with her. Uh, she was an outstanding player at DePaul, led the nation in three-point shooting. 
and um, in my view, one of the very, very best of the uh, team uh, affiliated analysts on the pass. Uh, just so good. I will watch a Nets game even if I'm not necessarily interested in that game just because you get the benefit of her analysis. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, which probably is a significantly larger portion of you than those who don't know about Sarah Kustak, but I was born and raised in New York City, and the Nets were the New York team that I followed. I'm a Kings fan first and foremost, but especially when I was living in New York, the Nets were you know my Eastern Conference team. They're still my Eastern Conference team. I used to cover the Nets, and I tried to remain you know rel- <laughs> relatively cogent during <laughs> during the interview portion, but just absolute joy of a basketball lifetime for me to be able to interview Sarah Kustak. And she was absolutely wonderful. And it was such a joy of a conversation. And I'm really excited to share it with all of you. And now we're going to preview next week's games, or I guess we call them this week's games, um, starting with the game Monday against the Nets. And we're very honored to have with us as our guest for sort of a pre-analysis of that game, Sarah Kustak, who is the, uh, analyst for the Nets telecasts. And just to say a little bit about her, uh, a great player at DePaul, where she led the league and led the league, led the country in uh, three-point percentage. And most recently, the last several years, has been in my first year, and I think I would say probably everybody's first year, of league pass analysts and the work that she's done partnering with Ian Eagle doing the Nets games. So thank you for joining us, Sarah. Appreciate it. Ray, Nick, thank you for having me. This is an honor. I'm excited. And as always, uh, I, I love to get a chance to, to speak with both of you and, and chat uh, chat some Nets and Kings. Great. So I, I noticed that the um, Nets have been playing better recently, I think particularly defensively. Um, and wondered if you might comment on that and maybe lead from that into what you expect would be the most significant matchups um, in the game, both in terms of player matchups and maybe also in terms of coaching matchups. Yeah, I, 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 you, you nailed it. Um, where the Nets have improved significantly, I think, um, on the defensive end is just their continued acclimation with one another. And they have dealt, as many teams have, um, throughout the early part of the season with injuries and players in and out of the lineup, what rotations look like. And, and I also think just new pieces and a new group getting used to one another. So that was, that was square one. And then you move on to the fact that there have been players that have been in and out through the course of the season and the way Jock and this coaching staff have wanted this group to play is to pressure the basketball, try and um, create a, a faster pace and dictate the tempo through ball pressure, through getting in passing lanes, through creating opponent turnovers. And that is something, especially in the early part of the year, they had not done. Um, and now it's improving and they've shown whether it's different looks, different coverages, incorporating some zone uh, and overall to just improvements in rebounding. And I think that was one area that's always been a bit of a vulnerability for the Nets and in particular two at times. Nick Claxton had, had missed a lot of times. So they were playing smaller with Dorian Finney-Smith at the five spot. Of course, Ben Simmons has missed a significant amount of time this season, only playing six games. Uh, but it's been a collective effort on the glass. And I think for those reasons, it's improved defensively and it's allowed them to get some early offense. And, you know, I think you 
you look at this team, this Brooklyn Nets team and in the area where they have found a great strength is from the three point line and not just the volume of three point shots are taking, but the efficiency of which they are making them. I think at this point, you know, as we sit here talking they're they're tops in the league in three point percentage are right around there. Um, it, and a lot of that has been due to just not just their starters, but also those coming off the bench and the reserve unit. And that has changed and the lineups have fluctuated, but the, the consistent has been that that's been an integral part to when they found their ways to wins. Um, but overall, I think it's going to be, it's going to be fun to watch Sacramento Kings. You know, I was, I had the great fortune of coming out here during uh training camp and for media day for Sirius XM NBA radio to do a preview show. And of course there's a ton of talent on this Kings team. I am a huge fan of Mike Brown, what he has done with this group and, um, I think how you continue to watch now De'Aaron Fox back and the tempo that he creates and, you know, what Demonis Sabonis can do. Um, of course, Harrison Barnes, just the, the steady veteran presence that he brings to the table. And I know Keegan Murray maybe hasn't been shooting the ball quite as well as those has, have hope from the three-point line. But I, I think there's just so many pieces to this team. Um, Monk, again, list goes on. Kevin Herter. That will be interesting to see how how these matchups look and, and what they will do defensively. I think so often we talk about specific matchups and what you look at. Dennis Smith Jr. is out in tomorrow's game. I, I would have loved to see. I'm sure he would have spent some time on De'Aaron Fox. Um, he brings such a tenacity to the defensive end, but has struggled a little bit early on with some injuries. But whether it's you're looking at, at a player like Mikel Bridges, you could toss on a point guard or um, you know where they put Spencer Dinwiddie, but how much switching this Nets team does how much switching, you know, in, in general that the league has done. Um, I think that Fox will see a lot of different looks. And I think, you know, Sabonis will, as always, uh, be a major, major factor in this one for a player like Nick Claxton and how he deals with that type of size and that frame and the physicality that he brings to the table. What that looks like um, is something that I'm really, really curious to see and, and curious to see um, how these teams are able to kind of move those chess pieces in, in with the players and the lineups that they have. Well, to follow up on that, um, I noticed, and of course, I'm not the only one who noticed, but I noticed that there's a combo at center now um, with Sharp um, playing significantly more minutes. How do you see that combination um affecting what you just talked about. Yeah, Ray, you're right. And I think the fun part about Dayron Sharp um, is now he's in his third year. He had spent a lot of time that rookie year um, with the Long Island Nets and and just putting up big numbers. He, from the time he he stepped into the league and as he always had been, you know, his days, um, you know, throughout the early part of high school, even college, rebounding is his strength. And it's not just a size, it's an instincts. It's where he understands angle anticipation he's so quick and light off his feet not just first jump but second jump and so he has always been someone that's cleaned up not only defensively but offensively and continues to do that in his time on the floor I think where he's grown this season is okay how is he going to work the pick and roll coverage making sure that he not only plays aggressively and physical but also keeping it clean there's been times in the early part of his young career and again he's only 22 years old and a bright bright future ahead um, but how do you make sure to balance that line uh, of using your strength, using your size, but also not picking up some cheap fouls. And so I think that's where it's going to be interesting to your point of whether it's Claxton, whether it's Sharp, how can they continue to utilize those type of characteristics um, to battle some of the size that quite frankly, that, you know, Sacramento gives a lot of people trouble with. 
Um, but yeah, but Sharp has been someone who put in a ton of work in the offseason um, and continues to show now when he's getting time on the floor that he what he, what he has done and the work he's put in continues to to deserve that, earn that, and, and hopefully help to see that flourish and grow. Has that um, usage of the two of them followed any sort of preordained pattern or is it kind of on the fly? I think it just depends. You know, there's there's been times where I think Sharp has gotten a little bit more run because Nick Claxton has gotten into early foul trouble or has picked up some fouls. Um, so I, I think in some regard that that's been a factor in it. Um, Claxton has missed some time throughout the course of the season with injuries. And I, I also think, too, it's, you know, with Sharp, a lot of it, um, as I had mentioned earlier, Dorian, Dorian Finney-Smith is really um, just been a critical, critical component in so many areas of what this team does. You cannot talk enough about what he does and what he means to this group. I had mentioned the three-point shooting, of course, an important part of the, the offensive side, and he is a major factor in that, how efficient he's been from three um, and doing the little things, things that do not show up in a box score uh, with multiple effort plays, you know, 50-50 balls, uh, j- just a tenacity that he brings to the table, his communication on the defensive side, in particular when they're switching. And so when Ben Simmons had first went out and when Claxton was out at that same time, Dorian uh, was starting in that five spot and and he was absolutely terrific. But I think now as Dayron Sharp continues to prove that the time he deserves on the floor, I think there is a nice combination of how Jack Vaughn wants to play things, um, who he wants to have on the floor in specific matchups and, and circumstances. And also I think in, in closing lineups, a big thing as we all know, you you want to have solid free throw shooters on the floor, and that's still areas that both Sharp and Claxon are continuing to work to improve upon. And so I think you'll see uh, just a variability and and a lot of that just having to do with how the team is playing, how they're clicking, and, and how they want to play in certain instances. Um, but I think all of those individuals have done a really nice job in just figuring out a fit and understanding their roles. And they would, I assume, maintain... Uh, the option of, quote, going small if absolutely necessary, because he has had that experience playing at the five, even though you do have two really good centers. Yeah, I think they've used that a lot. I think where they look at, you know, we we so often have seen this throughout the course of the league of teams playing a little bit smaller. And again, sometimes depending on the matchup, but Dorian has held his own against other. I think also, you know, small, there's a, a length component. And so when you look at all five players on the floor, you know, whether it's Finney Smith, whether it's Cam Johnson that's out there, whether it's, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie at the one spot, Mikel Bridges, Royce O'Neal, I keep going out. But all of a sudden, it's you may be, you may not have a, the the same amount of inches of a seven footer out there or someone that's 6'10, but at the same token, you got a ton of 6'8, six, 6'7 six, guys with really long wingspans that can play fast. That if they're all going to collectively communicate and how they want to defend the bigs on the floor, how they want to rebound, you know, the, the, the small ball mentality. And I think we've seen that throughout the course of the past few years and the evolution of the game, the three point shooting, the volume that that goes with the fast pace. Um, sometimes too, you look at it, it's like, well, we're, we're calling this lineup small, but really when you got when you got a bunch of guys that are six, seven, six, eight uh, on the floor, it doesn't look quite that way. But I, I think, you know, the combinations of what they're looking for, how they want to play, um, is something that will c- just continue to be flexible and fluid, especially to you look at a Cam Thomas with how he's, you know, had come out of the gates, dealt with some injuries, but him coming back. And so it goes back to the moving parts and the, and the puzzle pieces that sometimes, you know, you think it's, 
easy, easy for, for coaches to make decisions on this, but um, sometimes that optionality is something that you look to at, at what the opponents are doing and, and how you go about it. Often referred to as a good problem to have. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So speaking of a lot of moving parts, there's been one part that hasn't been particularly moving at all throughout the course of his NBA career, and that being Mikhail Bridges, who basically never misses time. He's on, I believe, year three of being of missing zero games the entire season, which is obviously huge for the team. But I'm curious, sort of with Mikhail, he's obviously had that absolutely nuclear run with Brooklyn to end last season after the trade, but he's talked at times this season about sort of the difficulties of being a 20 point a game scorer while also keeping up the sort of level of defensive intensity that he has been known for throughout his career. So what are your thoughts on how that's sort of meshing for him this season? I know he started a little cold. He's warmed up as of late, had that 42 point game recently, but how do you think he's sort of handling that balance? One, I'm going to start with the fact that he is one of the best human beings and individuals um, that you would want to have around your organization. And that includes how he shows up every single day, locker room guy, whether it's, you know, d- d- walking around the arena. It, and I think that type of um, just absolutely positive energy and those vibes that goes a long way with how it builds the chemistry of a group. And so he's invaluable in that regard. I think there was a ton of, to your point, Nick comes over in the trade last season, both he and Cam Johnson, um, Doreen Finney Smith and, and Spencer Dinwiddie parts of those as well as Kyrie Irving and, and Kevin Durant were moved. And so there was so much responsibility. I think as you saw what he was able to do, there's a lot of moving pieces of everyone reacclimating. You know, you got guys from from two different teams, those that were already still with the Nets. How do you kind of fit this all together? I think there was so much talk and discussion in the offseason, the preseason and buildup of this being Bridges team and him being the go to guy. Um, and I think as we've seen it all play out with, with the new pieces and new parts of this Nets team, they collectively just have played really well. Um, together with how they play for one another, how they want to play, share the basketball, the the shot distribution and the shot profile of what they're getting. And I think, you know, as you mentioned it for Bridges, it's been a work in progress of of the balance of all of that. The, the you know, really Cam Thomas um, early on, just how well he was playing on that offensive side in the context of the offense. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot of offensive weapons. And so I think so much of what Bridges is relied upon and needed. And you think about what he did for Team USA, you know, most often guarding the best player, best opposing player, did the same types of things for Phoenix. That's a heavy load to carry on both sides of the floor, not to mention an Ironman player who who he's playing in every game. He's playing really heavy minutes. Um, so I think he continues to thrive and flourish in those areas. Um, and I think he just is, you know, he's at this point and at this reason because he has such, such high expectations for himself and, and you watch him and he's just been terrifically successful in this early part of the season. But I think there are some games or some areas where I think he just wants more for himself on both ends of the floor. And so I think, you know, again, I, I believe it's all a work in progress with a group of we look at where things stand in December and we know a lot can change by the time you get to February, by the time you get to March and what that looks like for a group. And so I think Bridges, it continues, again, a player that the changing roles, the change responsibility, what he was asked to do in Phoenix, um, you know, at times too, when Devin Booker 
was out in certain instances and he had a, a lot higher of a usage rate. I think regardless, he's a player who wants to take on any challenge. And I think this early part of this year has been a challenge for him. And he's still, you know, averaging over 23 points per game. Um, what he's able to do in terms of the, the rebounding and the assist nature, I think there's so many parts of his game that he has added to every single year. And I think this now in a new role and new responsibility is something um, that he continues to learn how that is able to impact a team on both ends of the floor. And I, I think he'll continue just to to grow into that. So you mentioned sort of the changing roles for Mikhail Bridges and all the different roles he's had to handle. For Cam Thomas, he's really only had one major role since his days at Oak Hill, which is putting the ball in the basket. And this year, he's gone from, you know, essentially bit player in last year's Nets rotation to, you know, missing a lot of time, granted, but essentially being the leading scorer for this team. I'm curious, what do you think about sort of how his game has evolved around that, whether it be just the evolution of his scoring game or sort of what he's been doing outside of that? He's been a more willing passer, at least this year, than he's been in the past. I, I said this about Dayron. I'll say the same thing about Cam Thomas. Just turned 22. Yeah. I mean, he he is a young individual who um, I what I was so impressed about in the early part of the season, he was putting up big, big numbers before that ankle injury um, and has since he came back. But what he did in in the context, in the the flow of the offense felt very different to me than a lot of his big time. You know, last year, there was so much attention around the fact after the Kyrie and the Kevin trades were made, uh, Cam had those three straight games of 40 plus points. You know, as you mentioned, he's a he's a, a walking bucket, you know, professional scorer can do it in Anywhere on the floor, doesn't matter who's on him, doesn't matter how many players are on him. It's it's really unbelievable to watch. But in the early part of the season, it it all was quick decision making. And as soon as he caught the ball, it it was either a he was going to get to a spot to get a basket, get to the lane, take a shot, or he was passing and moving the ball, the distribution. To your point, he's always I think he's always been a willing passer. He's an unselfish player, despite how much he's able to score. It's just the fact of I think when someone is that skilled and that talented to be able to get off a shot anytime they want against anyone at a very high efficiency. I think sometimes there's that balance of figuring out when is it when is this a good shot and when it's a, a better shot to make a play for a teammate. And I think he's still continuing to to figure that out in what's best, but I thought he's really done a nice job of figuring out how to not have it be such isolation ball or dribble, 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 and just working to get past this guy in single coverage. And so it's felt different to me. Um, the efficiency and accuracy from which he's making shots has also been a, a heightened level. And I also think that the thing with Cam has always for, you know, Jack Vaughn saying has always been about the defensive end as well. And I think his effort and his attention on that end, the tried, you know, the continued engagement possession after possession, I think there's still room to grow, obviously, but that has improved. And I think for all of those reasons, Cam Thomas has got such an extremely bright future because he is so skilled and scoring is always going to be necessary in the NBA. But I think how he's doing it and the way in which he's making decisions, the way he's seeing the floor um, is something that to me has been a significant jump and, and really, really exciting to see in a young player. You've talked about um, various ways that young players in particular have improved and, and broadened their game, et cetera. How much of that would you attribute to Coach Vaughn and, or to the assistant coach staff or to the developmental staff? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Ray, I would say all of I mean, this is this is an extraordinary coaching staff. Obviously, you get a little biased when you're around these individuals all the time. And you see because I see, you know, I have the great fortune. This is one of my favorite parts of the job that I have is that I get to sit through practice. I get to sit through shoot arounds. I get to sit and watch them during training camp. I get to watch in the off season when, you know, the hours that it's, it's, it's not always is when the bright lights are on. That is the most impressive things about watching these individuals work. And so you see whether it's the Jack Vaughn, you know, the assistant coaches, the development staff, the player development, um, you know, even guys in the film room and, and them working and showing different. It, it takes it takes a village. I mean, that, there's a, there's that that cliche for a reason. And I think that applies as well in player development. It also comes back to the players themselves. They have to be dedicated enough to not only listen and and take all all the different uh insights advice experience you know critiques you name it but also for them you know they're at this point for a reason they are playing in, in the best league in the world um because they have put in that time and so i think you give you know the credit is shared but especially for the individuals and these players and and i think this coaching staff as well but jack vaughn you know taking over since last year for steve nash um and now becoming a permanent fixture and some of the change there's been changes within the assistant coaching staff I think for for everyone and for all of those reasons um, it, it's fun to watch and I think these players have such a great respect of the different viewpoints and the different individuals that have helped them craft their game but I do I do think you know for everyone to understand that it's not just about you know some of those practices or you watching what's happening in the game this is a day-by-day -day stacking days to make improvements like you see you know, it's great to have that for players to have that sort of threshold understanding of that changes that they would make to their game that we might see as progression. Maybe they don't see that at first as that, but ultimately, if they're all doing those things and making it as part of an organic whole, it's going to be better for them individually when the team does better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this group in particular too, and, and obviously I'm around them a lot. I did call all their games and the practices and, and see them travel or, or the, the majority of it. Um, but they really, they've got a great, a great energy and vibe and care factor for one another. And that goes a long way. I, I would say the same thing. My, my short time being around this Kings team, um, and I think there's different groups, but you understand when there is a, a true level of buy-in and contributions of being happy for your teammate. And, and I see that in this team. I've seen it since, you know, the training camp, you watch it and whether it's highs and lows or, you know, the wins and losses, um, but you see the excitement and the pride and yeah, just the, the, the real, real true passion to watch the success of your teammates. And I think that's, um, that's something to me that you can't, you can't fake that, that that's genuine and that's real. And at the end of the day, it may be a, a small percentage or maybe a big percentage of it. Um, but in terms of how successful you are, that always ups things. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that's impossible to quantify, but also just makes intuitive sense of, hey, if you like going into work every day, you're going to yep. do a better job just because you're happier you're to be there. working with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the Nets, as Ray sort of mentioned up top, have been on a pretty decent run as of late. But this game against the Kings on Monday is the start of a really tough road trip for the Nets. So, you know, playing the Kings, then Phoenix, then Denver, Golden State, and Utah. 
how big of a thing do you think this road trip is essentially is this you know something where the team might look at it as you know hey this is our chance to prove ourselves against some of the top teams in the western conference is this just you know continuing sort of a run of good form how do you think they feel about this upcoming road trip because those are some difficult those are some difficult games to be playing back to back to back yeah i think they just appreciate and embrace the challenge and understand how good this league is and no matter who you're playing how seriously you have to take it and so i think you know you look at this point of the season and a lot of moving parts a a lot of special especially in the eastern conference you've got a handful of teams you know looking at the the celtics and now the pacers uh but the 76ers but you know there's some that feel like they have have separated themselves um towards the top but the the middle part of the eastern conference feels pretty wide open and and there's going to be stretches in the season that certainly will impact what happens in the long run and for the Nets, they've got off of a homestand of which they, for the most part, were were um, successful. But now they understand these are some of the best teams in the Western Conference they're ha- having to face. And I think that's fun for them. I think it's fun. You look at the Kings, a, a team that had such great success last season. Um, and, and some of these, you know, players who you still you got a mix between veterans and and youth but how successful they've been in this league i think that's fun obviously for the the nets to get to face but also you got you know mikhail and and cam johnson going back to to phoenix to play against an organization they had spent the entirety of the early part of their career in a place that they had called home ones you know that sure a lot of people there that that had still loved and cared about them so that'll be a fun game you go see the defending champions and the denver nuggets i don't need to walk you through the other uh many defending champions in the past uh, of the warriors and then utah so as you mentioned i think there's always there's always something fun and interesting and unique about each game and um the the idea and concept of a night-by-night basis of how the styles of play change what superstars you're seeing the collective of the team i think all of that for these players it goes back to jock vaughn and this coaching staff trying to to really figure out what buttons to push with with lineups with rotations um but overall there i think there's a good sense of motivation and hunger of this team of feeling like they've got a, a long runway of areas and places to improve and i think this west coast trip certainly will be a major major challenge in that sarah um thank you so much for giving us so much of your time before we let you go i just want to ask you if there's anything you would want to add about the nets or previewing the game or or anything else yeah no i just think it's a fun time of year first of all thank you guys for having me on i appreciate uh i appreciate you having me on and the time but but overall i think it's a fun time of year i think you look at us coming off the the in-season tournament and just what that looked like, um, you know, whether teams were participating or not, but just the the kind of the verb and the excitement of the NBA season at this point and getting ready for, you know, whether it's the Christmas Day games or what things look like as teams are trying to solidify themselves in the standings of both the Eastern and Western Conference. So I think overall, it's just, it continues to be a fun time of year, but I think this matchup uh, will be one just in the styles of play, the way these two teams both want to play. I think it's going to be a, a really great game. Well, thank you so much. Always great to renew our relationship. Yes, yes, great to see you as always, right? And Nick, and Nick, the official meeting of Nick. So we'll always hope he's still still watching all those those uh, nets on yes games. Always. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us, and thank you, of course, to our special guest Sarah Kustak. You can find her on Twitter at Sarah Kustak, and you can, of course, find her wonderful coverage of the Brooklyn Nets on the Yes Network. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's 
always much appreciated on our front, but of course, especially appreciated seeing as we are a relatively new show. And if you have any feedback about the show, feel free to reach out either via Twitter at Kings Weekly Pod or email Kings Weekly Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.